Well, if you don't know me, my wife and I have three little girls. Lilia is 10, uh, Caroline is 7, and Madeline is 4. And we're at a stage right now where Madeline, our four-year-old, she wants to do everything her older sisters are doing. Everything. Now, she can't do everything they're doing for a couple reasons. One, she's younger than them, but also Madeline has a, a medical condition known as cerebral palsy. So she can't walk yet. So yesterday we were at a birthday party and the girls uh, and a bunch of the kids were jumping on a trampoline. And Madeline doesn't fully understand her limitations yet. So she says to us, I want to jump. I want to go jump on the trampoline. But I know that means I have to jump on the trampoline. <laughs> And I don't know that that thing has been weight tested for me, so we have to try to reason with her. No, no, you can't. But she doesn't, she doesn't want to hear no. Recently, I was joking with my older girls. It was hot out, and I had to mow the lawn, and I was like, ah, I don't really want to mow the lawn in this heat. And I kind of said to my girls, which one of you wants to mow the lawn? And of course, neither one of them wanted to, except for Madeline. You know, <laughs> Madeline was a consistent, Dad, I will mow the lawn. I was like, let's get you walking, and then we'll figure out how you can, how you can mow the lawn. Um, but a big one right now is, is board games. So we like to play board games in our house. And whenever the girls say to me, Daddy, let's play this game, as soon as Madeline hears it, no matter what else she's doing, she's like, I want to play. I want to play. And so now some of the games she just doesn't understand. But then some of the games, it's just it's a two-player game. But you can't really reason with her. So Caroline, my seven-year-old, loves playing Battleship. Like, that's her game. Any Battleship aficionados in the room? So she loves playing Battleship. And for the longest time, I couldn't beat her at Battleship. And then I realized why. Look at what she was doing with her Battleship board. (laughs) Can you see that? Is she a little genius or what? Like, I literally cannot beat her. Like, there's no combination of letter and numbers I can say to sink that last ship. But uh, we, we love playing Battleship, and, and Madeline's all about trying to play Battleship with us. She doesn't understand. This is a two-player game. We can't both play at the same time. But one game that the girls like to play that she does get to play with them is the game Hide and Seek. And they love doing hide and seek around the house and hiding in different places. And Madeline always wants to play. But Madeline uh, is not very good at hide and seek. And here's why. When she hides, she laughs the entire time. <laughs> so one of the poor girls has to take her into like a closet to hide with her. But the whole time, Madeline is just laughing and laughing and laughing. She doesn't quite understand the idea here. You know, um, people who have studied different Uh, civilizations and different people groups around the world say that they have not yet discovered a people group anywhere in the world that doesn't have some version of the game hide and seek. It was interesting. Every people group has some version of the game hide and seek. In the very beginning of scripture, I think we get a sense of where this uh, hiding starts, right? In Genesis chapter 3, when we read the story, the account of the fall, and when Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, their very first reaction is to hide themselves and to try to hide from God. And since that moment, I think humankind, generally speaking, we are just prone to hiding. We're hiders. And technology has given us new ways to hide now, right? So we have this thing out there called social media where we, we put ourselves out there. We sort of platform ourselves and we live on display for the world, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is. And the irony is, is it's supposed to be giving people more access to your life, but I think in reality it's actually a tool to hide. Because what we're doing is we're saying, you can see me, but you can only see the part of me that I want you to see. 
And so we're completely in control of how they engage with us, that we only show our good moments, we only show our, our best angles, and we get obsessed with the way we look, and now we have filters that we put on our pictures so that we look differently. And I read an article this week that plastic surgeons are saying that more and more people are coming in to get plastic surgery so that they will look like their Snapchat filter. Isn't that sad? Because they've fallen in love with the way they look in this specific filter, the way it makes their face look, and now they said, I want plastic surgery so I look like that all the time. So these ways of hiding. This week I heard about two apps that I thought were very interesting, but in the end they're just more ways of hiding. One of them is called HoneyFi. And uh, what people are learning is that young couples who get married, millennials who are getting married, are less likely than previous generations to combine their bank accounts. They like to keep their bank accounts separate from each other. But that creates certain problems when it comes to making sure that the bills are getting paid. And so they've created this app called HoneyFi, and there's other ones like it. And the idea is it sort of combines your bank accounts for the purpose of bill paying, but it still gives both of you the opportunity to hide certain purchases from your spouse. And uh, now that could come in handy as far as like when you buy somebody a birthday present, right? Erin and I share an Amazon account, and so I have to figure out a way to make sure she doesn't see that I bought her something on Amazon. But there's also kind of a, a darkness to that too, isn't there? The idea that I would be able to spend money keeping it secret from the person who I'm supposed to be sharing all of my life with. So we have these technological ways of hiding. Another app I heard of that actually doesn't exist anymore, they shut it down, was an app called Somebody, and it was a messaging app. And so if you and I were both a part of the Somebody app, so let's say John and I are part of the Somebody app, I could send a message to John. But not just like text message or, or um, Facebook um, you know, direct messaging. It was a personal message delivered by a third party, a person. And so somebody else that has the app would deliver the, the message in person to John verbally. So the way it works was, if I have this app and I want to tell John that I'm angry at him about something, but I can't get to him, and I don't just want to send him an angry text, and Susan's an app member, I give Susan the message, and with a GPS coordinate, she can locate John, and she can deliver the message, and the message actually says, here's what I want you to say, and here's, what I want you to, here's how I want you to act while you're saying it. Cry here. Yell here. Get angry here. And you know that one out of every four of those messages that went out actually was delivered by somebody. So people are running around, walking up, and delivering messages, not just to friends. We know each other, but it was to complete strangers. They'd walk up to strangers and say, David wants you to know, and then they would say it with the same emotion that I want them to say it with. Isn't that weird? I mean, it's very strange. But as I thought about it, I thought, it's just another way of kind of hiding, right? It's like me kind of getting my point across, but from a distance and through somebody else. And so we, we keep hiding, but here's, here's why hiding isn't good for us, because if we're honest, what every single one of us wants, what we really want is to be both fully known and fully accepted. We, that's why social media actually makes people more lonely, because even though we feel more accepted, we know we're not really fully known. And we live with this sort of haunting sense on our lives that if somebody really knew me, like really knew me, knew my junk, knew my dirt, knew my past, knew what I look like in the morning and what my breath smells like in the morning. Like if somebody like really, really knew me, they couldn't possibly really fully accept me or love me. And so we hide and we become professional hiders. We're, we're the humankind, we're experts at hiding. We hide from each other. We even hide from ourselves. That's called self-deceit. I've said this before, but uh, the person that's lied to you most in your life is 
yourself. And we hide from God. And it started at the beginning and it continues today. And this morning we're looking at a psalm. We're looking at Psalm 139, which is this beautiful psalm about how God knows everything. And he sees everything. But in spite of those truths, we still try to hide. And here's the big idea this morning. Here's what we're going to learn together this morning. We're going to learn this, that hiding from God ruins us, but hiding in God restores us. Okay? Hiding from God ruins us, but hiding in God restores us. So let's talk first about this idea of hiding from God ruins us. And let me read to you um, from Psalm 139, the first six verses. So it's on your notes if you, if you don't have a Bible with you. Otherwise, open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. I'm reading to you from the ESV translation. Here's the first six verses. We're going to read the whole thing eventually, but we're going to start with the first six. The psalmist is David, King David, and he says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Okay, so hiding from God ruins us. Why? Well, the first thing we learn in this psalm is that hiding from God is an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in futility. How many of you work in places where you sit in meetings over and over and over and nothing ever gets done because of those meetings? I've, I've been there at times in my life, and I say this to people. Is this another exercise in futility? In other words, are we wasting our time? And when you try to hide from God, you are wasting your time. It can't be done. You know, kids are funny. They, 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 and when they're very little, they think that if, if they can't see you, you can't see them, right? And so, like, when they try to hide from you, they just close their eyes. Like, like by sheer willpower, now they've become invisible. And it's ridiculous, and we know it's ridiculous, but it's no more ridiculous than somebody trying to hide from God. The psalmist says here, you know everything. He knows it all. He knows everything. Here, let this sink in. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. The things your spouse doesn't know about you. The things that your family doesn't know about you. Even the things you don't know about yourself. He knows everything about you. Not just what we do according to the psalm, but he even knows what we think. He knows what we think. Did you notice the phrase that said, before the word is on my tongue. Before I've even said it, you know what's coming. I I don't even always know what I'm about to say. Anybody ever say anything and then you're like, ah, I didn't mean to say that. Like, I I do that sometimes. Sometimes I'll start sentences because I'm kind of a fast talker. I'll start sentences and I don't actually know how they're going to end. And we're kind of all finding out at the same time. How's this sentence going to end? You know when I do this a lot? I'm a list maker. So when someone says, why should we do this? Without even thinking, I'll say something like this. Well, there's four reasons. I don't have four reasons in my head at the time, <laughs> but I know I can come up with four. Uh, there's four reasons. First one is this. Second, and about the second time, I'm like, why didn't I say there were two reasons? <laughs> there's two reasons. But sometimes I start sentences or I start thoughts, and I, I don't even know how they're going to finish. But God knows before the word is on your tongue, he knows what you're going to say. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what's in your heart. And he knows it's not just like, uh, uh, sort of a receptor scanning us for information, like to get data about us. 
The psalmist says that he doesn't just know us from a distance. He's not just collecting data. It says that he gets involved. His knowledge leads him to get involved. Did you notice the words in there? Like he discerns. He sifts us. He, he changes us. This week I was listening to a podcast and I learned about a man named Brian Henderson. Brian Henderson has what I think is one of the strangest hobbies I've ever heard of. Are you familiar with Wikipedia? Wikipedia is a website. It's a crowdsourced free dictionary. Volunteers contribute to it and volunteers edit it. And he is a volunteer editor for Wikipedia, but he only edits one thing. He's the grammar grammar police, but he only cares about one word, and it's the phrase comprised of. Did you know that comprised of is not correct English? It should be either composed of or just the word comprises by itself. So comprised of, if you ever write a paper, don't use the phrase comprised of because it's not proper, it's not correct. And this is Brian Henderson's life passion is to correct this. So here's what he does. Over the last eight years, he has corrected 48,000 instances of comprised of on Wikipedia. 48,000. And he keeps up with it. So tonight, every Sunday night, he spends about an hour of his life catching everything that was posted the previous week. He says every week, 50 to 100 more times comprised of gets posted somewhere in Wikipedia. So every Sunday night, while the rest of us are having time with our family, reading a book, watching football or whatever, Brian Henderson's on his computer. He runs this program, and here's what his program does. It scans the entirety of Wikipedia just looking for the phrase comprised of. And then he goes in and he edits it. And every time he edits, he adds a footnote to a 6,000-word paper he wrote on why they should not use the phrase comprised of. I was like, this, this guy needs a new hobby. Like, this guy needs to do something else. But he's so passionate about it. But he's got this program that just scans Wikipedia, looks for information, and then changes it. And God, in a similar way, as God scans us and looks over us and sees our minds and see our, sees our hearts, he doesn't just see it and say, I've noticed and I've written it down and I'm keeping score. I know. He says, I'm going to get involved. I want to change. I want to interfere. I want to intrude. Or intrude. And, and here's the problem. There's so many people now that say, I want a relationship with God. A lot of people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I don't go to church, but I have a good relationship with God. A lot of people say that. And people say, I want a relationship with God, but I don't want one that intrudes. I don't want one that interferes. Now, hold on. Imagine saying that to your spouse. Try that on a family member. You know, imagine getting down on one knee to propose to somebody or someone's proposing to you and you say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I love you. I want to commit the rest of my life to you. However, I don't want any of your preferences to ever intrude on me. Good luck, right? The very foundation of a personal relationship is that the other person has the right to contradict you. The other person has the right to interfere and intrude. But so many people are in pursuit of a personal relationship with God on their terms, that he can't intrude, that he can't interfere. But you know, if that's the way you're approaching God, if you say, I love God and I love this about God, but I don't like this about God, so I'll take this about God, but I'm going to leave that over there about God, you know what you have? You do not have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with what we would call a Stepford God a God of your own creating. You've created God in your image as opposed to the truth that God has created us in his image. And so we can't have a personal relationship with God unless we allow him to know us, to see into our hearts, and then to discern and shift and change us. So let me ask you this question as an application moment. What's the last thing you've read in scripture 
When's the last time you heard a sermon where you had a change, something about you, as a result of what you read or what you heard? And if you can't remember the last time, chances are you're not actually letting God intrude on your life. Because if you're faithfully in Scripture, guess what? Eventually you're going to read something that you're going to go, ah, wish that wasn't there. Ah. And you can either just dismiss it and forget it and continue your relationship with this artificial God of your own making, or you can say, God, you know me. Search me. Discern me. Sift me and shift me and change me. He knows all. He also sees all. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 12. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You're everywhere. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is like the depths. Maybe we might think of the word hell here. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so the depths of the seas or the heights of the skies, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand, his hand of favor, shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me uh, be night, basically if we can hide from God in our own darkness, verse 12, the psalmist says, even the darkness is not dark to you. You know, there's no darkness in your life or darkness in your circumstances that God can't see through. Why? Because the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God's everywhere. We can't escape from his presence. Whether we go to the height of heavens, whether we go to the lowest of lows that the psalmist calls Sheol, even in the darkness, it's an exercise in futility, okay? Here's the other thing it is, and excuse this term, but I think it's the best term to use. Not only is hiding, in God, hiding from God an exercise in futility, it's also an exercise in stupidity. It really is. Now, I like lots of different types of movies, but there's one genre of movies that I just don't like. I don't enjoy watching them, and they're horror movies. I, just, I know some people like that. I just can't get into it. I don't need that stress in my life. And, and I'm just not a fan of it. But I've seen enough to know that at, at, at almost every point in every horror movie, there becomes a moment where someone's in their home being chased by somebody bad. And where do they always run? They always run upstairs. Like the one place they can't get out. It's like you're screaming at the, <laughs> the movie screen, like, run from the door. Like, get out of the house. But instead, they're running up the stairs. And what would you say? That is so stupid. Like, why would you do that way? Why would you do it that way? And yet we're like that. We run from God as an, as an exercise in stupidity. And the reason why is because when you and I hide from God, here's what we're doing. We're running from our only hope. He is our only hope in life and in death. And we're trying to hide from him. We're trying to run from him. Let's continue to read beginning in verse 13. Now, uh, the psalmist, David, has talked about how God sees us in darkness, and now he gets, a ver- he gets very specific, and he talks about the darkness of the womb. Look what he says. These are beautiful verses. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's talking about God's work of design and creation in the womb. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That word made also could mean set apart. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of, or sorry, as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
is this the sort of God you want to hide from? Is this the sort of God you want to run from? He, his care for us extends into the first moments of life. Whenever that moment begins, his care is there, extending to us in the darkness of the womb. It says that he forms you, that he designs you, that he knows you. You know, pre-born babies in the womb, it's amazing the things that they can do. It's amazing. I was reading about it this week, that things that maybe we know, like they can suck their thumb, and they can yawn, and they stretch, and like when moms are really pregnant, you can see their, you know, baby moving, and like moving its foot across the, the belly and stuff. And, but there's also recent studies that have said that babies can uh, distinguish different languages pre-born in the womb. Sciences, you know, scientific studies that are being done, I don't know that they're conclusive, but they're being done by legitimate organizations saying if you track the heart rate of an, a pre-born baby, that different languages create different responses uh, from that pre-born baby. You know, pre-born babies can develop a, even taste preferences in the womb. Why do you think I like Korean food so much? Because when my mom was carrying me for nine months, she was eating a lot of kimchi. And so I, I, I love it. But that does happen. We can develop those sort of things. All this happening, all, this, all these miracles happening. But one of the miracles that happens in a preborn baby is that God is right there already caring for that child. Already, already, uh, already before a single day of his or her life has been lived out, it's already written in his book. He already knows. In the New Testament, it says this way. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says, Even before God made the world, he loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Think about that. Before God made the world, he loved you. He chose you in Christ. Why? To be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, let's be honest. How many of us most days feel holy and without fault in God's eyes? Or remind yourself this, before he made the world, he already chose you that way. He chose you to be that way. He, he, he put that on you. Second Timothy 1.9 says that this was his plan from the beginning of time. God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, right? We all agree there? Not because we deserved it, but because this was his plan from the beginning of time. I love this phrase, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. You know what this means? Every bit of grace you need today to deal with people, to get through the day. If you're going to the fair later, every bit of grace you need to manage those crowds and wait in those lines and deal with the heat, every bit of grace you need existed in Jesus before he made the world. It's, God's not scrambling through his closet looking for more grace for you. He's had this from the very beginning of time. His care for us extends not just into the womb, but before the foundations of the earth were laid. And we would run from this God, and we would hide from him. His care for us includes every day of our lives. He knows his plans and purposes for you. And here's, here's the thing. Now, in most cases, if somebody, if somebody said to you, I know everything about you, what would your heart do? It might start to race. You might get a little nervous. That's bad news a lot of times if someone would say, I know everything about you because we're worried you're going to use that knowledge, what? Against me. But according to the psalm, God doesn't use that knowledge against us. He knows everything about us, but his thoughts towards us are wonderful. It says that his thoughts are two things. They're precious and they're countless. They're innumerous. His love towards you is so good. The way he thinks of you. You think of yourself as this you know, inconsistent, sort of miserable, trying to be a Christian uh, person, but that's not how God sees you. 
That's not how he looks at you. He, he, he has a good plan for you, and he loves you, and he sees you as precious, and his thoughts towards you are good, and his thoughts towards you are countless. In other words, God's not running out of good thoughts for you. He's not like, I've thought of every good thing I have to say about that person, and I'm fresh out. God has countless good thoughts for you, and he doesn't use that knowledge against you. Did you notice there was one verse we read earlier where it says, he hems us in, before and behind, and he lays his hand on us. Now, as a parent, I know that when my kids are, depending on how my kids are acting, there's two different ways I can lay my hands on them, right? And they know the difference. If they're acting up in church, sometimes just a little firm grip, you know, not to hurt, not to, not to injure, not to bruise, but just a, just a nice little firm hand on the shoulder. It's all they need to know to go, okay, I need to stop. But sometimes, like yesterday, we were at the park in the morning at Onondaga Lake Park out for a walk with some church people, and there were dogs everywhere. And my seven-year-old, for whatever reason, is currently just terrified of dogs. I mean, she cries and she shakes and she doesn't like dogs right now. And so as, as we finally got her to walk, she would see them coming from like a mile away. You know, when you're afraid of something, you're the first one to see it, right? And so she'd see it coming from a mile away. So I would, I would feel her tense up, tense up and I would just reach down and just gently just put my hand on her arm. Just say, I'm here. And this is what it, this is what it, when it says that God places his hand on us, it's not a corrective hand. It's not a firm smackdown. It's a, just a hand on you to say, I got this. I'm hemming you in. I'm protecting you. I'm, I'm before you. I protect you from the things that are coming, but he's also behind us, which means he protects us from the things we can't even see. The things that are trying to get at us, the things that are trying to tear us down, God is already at work hemming us in, and he lays his hands on us. So here's what it means. God knows you. He sees you. He loves you. Why hide from him? Hiding from God ruins us. It keeps us from believing and receiving his love. And there's nothing more detrimental to the human heart when you can't believe and receive God's love for you. This week I was, I read a, I saw a tweet by a pastor named Brian Zond. He's a pastor in Missouri. And he said this, and this really um, stuck with me. I want to read it to you. He said, what if God had no attitude toward you other than unconditional unalterable, unending love? What if God had no other attitude toward you other than unconditional, unalterable, unending love? For a moment, just pretend that it's true. Pretend that God has infinite love for you. Ask yourself this, what does that feel like? How does that change you? Now believe it, it's true. God is love and his love is for you. Last point this morning, hiding from God ruins us, but the last thing we see in this psalm is this, hiding in God restores us, hiding in God. Let's read the rest of this psalm, beginning of verse 19, and the the tone changes here a little bit, and I'll explain why after I read it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So here's what's happening. After the psalmist sees God for who he is and now exposes evil for what it is. 
You can't look at evil and you can't look at sin the same once you've seen God in his great love. And this reaction that the psalmist has of like things like slay the wicked and I hate them, it's not spite for them, but it's zeal for God. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's not an isolated spite and hatred for somebody because they live differently than them or they make different choices for them. This comes from a place of deep zeal and reverence and awe and love for God. And because he has seen God's loving kindness and goodness, he looks at sin with intense hatred because he realizes what sin is. Sin is rejection of God's love. And you get this. If someone that you love is hurting themselves or being hurt by something, you learn to hate that thing that is hurting them. You don't hate them, but you hate that thing. If you have a family member who has a specific sickness that plagues them and that is killing them, eventually you don't say, oh, that's okay, I love that. You, you hate that thing. And sin is a sickness that's plagued the humankind and is ruining us, and God sees it, and it causes him to have deep, deep wrath against sin. And so the psalmist has the same reaction. In verse 19, he says, he really ratchets it up and says, would you just slay the wicked? Just kill him. But we have a problem. See, David knows that the enemies of God deserve death. But the psalm ends this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way where? In me. David doesn't just say, look at all those wicked, evil people. Slay them. Kill them. Get them, God. He says, God, start here. Look in me. Search my heart. Know my heart. Try my thoughts. That word thought means uh, an overwhelming, obsessive care. What are you overwhelmed about? What do you obsess about? What cares control you? That's what David's saying. God, identify the over-controlling, the over obsessive cares of my life, that I got to have this, that I need that, that I better be this. And then he says, see if any of my ways are grievous. That word grievous means see if any of my ways are hurtful to you and to others. And so this is interesting because David is calling for the death of the wicked, but at the same time he's realizing what? I'm, I'm one of them. I, I'm one of the wicked. I deserve death. God, if you know everything about me, if you've seen every moment of my life and you know every thought, then what hope do I have? And then he ends the psalm with this prayer, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, despite the fact that you know everything about me, despite the fact that you know that I'm wicked, despite the fact that the wicked deserve to die, how can David work up the nerve to finish with that prayer? Bring me into eternal life. How? Well, the answer is in the psalm. In verse 8, Psalm in verse 8, David says, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there too. Now, what kind of God has been to both of those places? What kind of God has been to the heavens and to hell? What kind of God would do that? And on David in Psalm 139, he's writing more metaphorical about the heights and the depths that we go through life. But as we continue to read the Bible, it becomes a little less metaphorical and a little more literal because there is a God. There is a God who knows what it's like to reign in heaven, but also descended to the depths of Sheol so that the wicked wouldn't have to be destroyed. 
And this is how it says, Josh read for us this morning from Philippians, the Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't just say, I'm comfortable in heaven. I'm, I'm very comfortable up here. I'm good up here. I'll stay up here and I'll watch. It's a good front row seat. I'll watch. But he emptied himself, it's the kenosis of emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humankind and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know from other scripture writings that when he died on the cross, he descended into hell. But therefore, because he rose from the dead, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why did Jesus do all this? Why did he leave heaven, come and live a human life, suffer and die the death of a criminal, descend into hell? Why did he do that? As our example, you go do the same? Partly, but not completely. That's not the real reason. Here's the real reason why Jesus did that. Because you and I couldn't. We never could. And as our substitute, he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I haven't, can't, won't. He lived it for us. He took the punishment for all of our sin and wickedness and selfishness on him at the cross. All the wrath of God that was intended for you and me because of sin landed on Jesus. And then he descended into hell, into Sheol, and he rose from the dead. Do you know why he rose from the dead? Because the grave had no claim on him. He was sinless. He was perfect. He didn't belong to hell. He belonged to God. And so he ascended out. He rose from the dead because the grave had no claim on him. And here's what it means for you and me this morning. As we place our trust and our hope in Jesus, we don't have to hide from God anymore. We get to hide in God. We're hidden in him. See that life he lived? He lived it for you. Hide yourself in his perfect life. See, the death he died, he died it for you. He died it as you. Hide yourself in him on the cross. You see his resurrection power? He rose from the grave so that you and I could rise from the grave someday. Hide yourself in him. Don't hide from God. Hide in God. And when David says, lead me in the way, here's what he's saying. Not lead me from a distance, but he's saying, be with me. Walk with me. Stay with me. Here's what David's really saying, I think. Let me hide myself in you. You're the only one who knows the path to eternal life. Can I hide in you? Can I hide in you? I don't know if you ever visited somebody at their workplace. I remember visiting my aunt. She used to uh, work at a prison in Rochester. And uh, she wanted to show me some things. I think she was trying to scare me or something. I don't know. But uh, she's, she's showing me around. And, but, uh, you know, I, normal person without a badge, you can't just walk into a prison. You can't go past the gates. You can't walk down the hallways. You can't. What, what's, what's your only chance to get in? You got to be with somebody who's got the right badge. You got you to enter on the basis of somebody else's standing. And this is what it means to hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. We enter in to a relationship with God, not flashing our own badge, attended church for six straight weeks, read my Bible every day, good person, I vote this way, I live this way, not flashing our badge, but hidden in Christ, hidden behind Christ as Christ shows the badge, perfect life, substitutionary sacrifice. The grave had no hold on him and he rose from the dead. And so we don't hide from God, we hide in God. How do we hide in God? It's simple. We simply stop hiding from him. 
We confess our sins. We confess our lostness. And we let Jesus cover us with his righteousness, with his performance, with his work. Let's bow our heads.